Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, July 14th, 2023, the 905th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Now, I've been talking recently about foundational understandings and misunderstandings. Foundational understandings are the sorts of things that we believe we know about the world upon which our understanding of the world is built. 
And if we happen to be wrong, if we happen to have a foundational misunderstanding and we have used that as the basis for our thought about a given subject, it's very likely true that we are coming to some bad conclusions about the subject because our thinking on a range of issues that lead to those conclusions is based on something we're wrong about. I initially brought this up in the context of informational time travel and the unwinding that we must do to go back through our lives and through a series of similar mistakes to get back to the beginning, to unwind the entire way and figure out what we got wrong that has walked us further and further into a false reality relative to that particular subject. And then hopefully by correcting that misinterpretation, that foundational misunderstanding we have constructed, we'll be able to catch up to the present as much as possible by re-examining everything that has happened now in light of our new and hopefully corrected or at least more corrected understanding of how things are. When you have been sent down a wrong path or have sent yourself down a wrong path and you have continued on down that path for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, you end up pretty far down that path. You've probably made a version of the same mistake in a version of a similar situation over and over and over and over again. And each time, rather than unwinding and figuring out whether or not there's a foundational misunderstanding at play, we'll instead do everything we can do to preserve the foundational misunderstanding and contextualize, justify, rationalize the mistake that we have just made again for the fifth time or 10th time or 15th time in our lives, even when it's in an area of our lives that's absolutely crucial for us to get right. The sort of thing where we can't ultimately find true happiness without having first understood the roots of what's going wrong. We got to walk back. We got to unwind through all of that stuff, get back to the beginning address that foundational misunderstanding, that interpretation of some life event that has sent us down the wrong path and into the false reality, sometimes far enough into the false reality that we reach a total inversion point where all the decisions we make going forward will all be wrong in a specific way for the exact same reason all because they are the purest form of the foundational misunderstanding and its ultimate results, what it will actually produce in the world and in your life. So just like in our lives, in our personal situations, in our reactions to trauma and the decisions that those reactions will yield in the future, we can also do the same thing with our ideas and the ideas that we have wrong. I mentioned how thinking that, for instance, our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and accurately reflect the will of the voters would be a foundational misunderstanding because our understanding of political science at large depends on the votes being accurately recorded and reflecting the will of the people. If that weren't true, most of what we believe we know about politics would immediately be obviously wrong. If the votes aren't real, then ideas, for instance, like 
Black Americans vote 95% Democrat and are absolutely committed Democrats. That's why cities around America are blue, because black people are there and they vote overwhelmingly for Democrats. That is the sort of thing that everybody knows. But it's also the sort of thing that no one actually could know unless the votes are free and fair and accurately recorded and reflect the will of the voters. We would also have to do better than exit polling to figure out what the demographics on the vote actually are. But without all of these various pieces of knowledge that would be required to prove the idea that black Americans are committed to voting 95% Democrat, there aren't all that many outside reasons to believe it, except for the race narrative we see on television that plays into the same understanding. But if our elections don't actually reflect the will of the American people and they're not able to accurately check the demographics of the voters at large in what we are told are the results of the election, then what basis do we have for saying that black Americans vote 95% Democrat? Do we just assume that the polls are right? Oh, the polls reflect roughly the same understanding that the fraudulent elections produce. Therefore, they must both be legitimate when the truth is they could just both be equally illegitimate and supporting the same narratives based on the same bad information. The foundational misunderstanding that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will of the American people is a necessary part of the basis for believing that black American voters are somehow almost naturally aligned with the Democrats, even though the Democrats are the party of the Klan and Jim Crow, and urban decay. And then if we accept these numbers about the proportion of black Americans voting Democrat, and we're not allowed to talk about the fact that it's because elections aren't legitimate, then we have to find other answers. And those answers will always lead us to making conclusions about black Americans. And the conclusions we reach may well affect the way we see our fellow citizens and the way we think of certain people politically and what that must mean about their character. And so I bring this up to provide some emphasis on the importance of the foundational understanding at work here. Believing that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results actually reflect the will of the American people, you will end up arriving at conclusions about race using that foundational misunderstanding as the basis for your belief. And we can see the results of that. Standard issue villagers are essentially wrong about both of those things. They have the foundational misunderstanding about our elections and they have thereby assumed and reinforced the idea that that conclusion about race is accurate and valid. And we know that because of the election results and the alignment of black Americans with the Democrat Party.
Now, that is exactly wrong and a total inversion within the false reality. But they will also tell themselves that for believing it, they are good people and they are helping the race problem while they have this moral and intellectual inversion affecting their thinking on something like race, which seems at first glance to be entirely unrelated to our understanding of election fraud but just so happens to require our understanding of election fraud as a supporting foundation for the ultimate conclusion. Now, I'm not trying to say that I have erased all of my foundational misunderstandings. I am absolutely certain that I haven't. And I think it's kind of part of the human condition to never actually be able to. But we can at least learn to recognize the thought process and the process of belief formation and be conscious of the building blocks of our beliefs. What does each one of our beliefs require in order to form that belief? What are the component parts of that belief? And can we prove each and every one of those component parts? Can we make them all make sense? Or is there a foundational misunderstanding there? And then we can go with each one of those component parts and figure out what builds that belief in our minds and figure out if we have any further foundational misunderstandings below that. One thing I find and one thing I imagine you find is that when you have reached a conclusion that has that ring of truth, when you first come across it, When you're able to support it and you find that through supporting it, you have just shed light on a whole new understanding of what's going on. You open the door to understanding a whole range of new topics because you're certain that everything fits together properly. All of those inconsistencies in your prior understanding, the parts that didn't quite add up, that didn't quite make sense. Well, now they all fall into place and they don't only just fall into place with one another. They fall into place along every other issue that might intersect with that component part. And the process can work forward and backward. You can correct the foundational misunderstanding about elections, realizing that our elections are stolen. There's absolutely no reason in the world to believe that the reported results of elections accurately reflect the will of the voters. And when you realize that, you realize that one of the component parts, one of the bases for belief about black American voters as a demographic has just been pushed away and eradicated. It no longer exists. If our elections are not free and fair, safe and secure, and accurately reflective of the will of the voters, then it no longer makes sense to claim that 95% of black Americans are politically aligned with Democrats. Now, many might be, the majority might be. The fact that we are told constantly that it's nearly all black American voters, and that's what makes the Democrat Party not racist despite its history, well, that idea vanishes immediately. And then once that idea vanishes, you say, okay, well, maybe it's not 95% of black American voters aligning politically with the Democrats. How much is it? Is it 70%? Is it 60%? Is it 40%? And how do we know? You can be black and have no idea what black voters as a demographic actually believe. What special knowledge would you have on the subject? 
Do you know more black people in real life than I do? Well, it's certainly possible that you do. I'm sure there are plenty of black people who know more black people than I do. But there are probably a lot of black people who know fewer black people than I do. Now, will your average black American have a better understanding of black America than I do? Yeah, probably. But even that insight doesn't mean that you fully understand the voting habits and the political ideologies of black Americans as a demographic class when one of the key facts informing us about the political ideology of black Americans has already vanished. And then it becomes, how does this affect my understanding of black Americans? How does this affect black America's understanding of black Americans? I've been talking for years about a moment I am certain we are going to get to witness in the relatively near future. And that is when the country understands at a critical mass that our elections are stolen to the point where people no longer feel any fear of being ostracized if they go ahead and talk about stolen elections. When that moment comes, we are going to have our view of ourselves and our fellow citizens completely turned on its head. What if, for instance, and obviously I don't know what the final numbers are, but what if, for instance, we are talking about the same 130 million voters, roughly, that we had in 2016, and we didn't have this miraculous spike in turnout where we saw a full 20% increase in total turnout during a very deadly pandemic. Let's just say that didn't happen. We didn't get those extra 27 or 28 million voters just from the availability of mail-in ballots in certain states. This clown show of excuses. Let's say none of that happened and we just had 130 million votes, not 130 million real lawful American votes, as I'm quite certain we did not have in 2016 either, but just 130 million votes. Should we assume that Donald Trump got 75 million? Well, who knows? It's impossible to know. You would think that Donald Trump's number would be skewed down if it was affected, and you have to assume that it was. But let's keep it steady at 75 for the purposes of this example. That would mean Joe Biden got 55 million votes if the same number of voters came out. And even that would be relatively shocking in the middle of a very deadly pandemic, especially for a candidate that couldn't draw 20 people to a campaign event. And again, this is just a hypothetical. I don't know that those are the numbers and I can't know. But for the purposes of the example, that would mean that Donald Trump actually beat Joe Biden by 20 million votes, despite the fact that we were told Joe Biden beat Trump by 6 million votes. Now, think about what that would do in the minds of standard issue villagers once they begin thinking about what that correction in their foundational misunderstanding of who the American populace is. Think about what that would do. These people who believe they have a moral majority and a popular majority on every single issue, and it is their responsibility 
being correct morally to make sure that their ideas are implemented throughout society so that they can drag along we primitive cavemen would have their minds blown once they start considering what the truth actually means. And a lot of us have considered what that truth means across a whole spectrum of issues. But imagine what it would mean even in their minds to understand that they aren't the majority and it's not even close. All of the crazy stuff that they push, believing they're safe in doing that and the society agrees with them and they're actually being society's heroes by being brave enough to say all these difficult truths like we need to allow schools to change children's genders. It's just what we need to do. I'm the best person morally. I'm the one who knows what's going on out there. You gotta listen to me. Sorry, cavemen, but we're the smart ones and we represent the majority. And if you all are gonna make it impossible for trans people to exist, well, then we're just gonna have to make sure you don't exist. That strategy toward public morality doesn't work out very well when you realize you're actually a fairly small minority. And then what would it mean about their precious vaccines and their vaccine mandates and the vaccine segregation they supported from the illegitimate administration? They argued in Joe Biden's favor as an illegitimate president to implement vaccine mandates on all federal workers and our military personnel who are tasked with protecting this country. They promoted vaccine segregation all the while thinking that they had their moral majority, their intellectual majority, and their popular majority. This is what the people really wanted. What does a correction of that foundational misunderstanding do to their interpretation of the events of January 6th, the very violent insurrection? They called their neighbors domestic terrorists. They promoted the exercise of state power to silence their perceived political opposition. What does it mean if everybody there protesting the stolen election was right about the stolen election? What does it mean that they could tell and sense and see that they were actually in a massive majority in this country and that everyone who thought otherwise was just tricked by the television? What does it mean that the illegitimate president has quote unquote taken us to war in Ukraine next to a Nazi army that he is funding and arming and other mercenary armies we are funding and arming and passing intelligence to while people are dying in mass, all of it in our names. What does it mean that an election was stolen to do all of these things? What would it say about the people in our government and the way they view us? Our understanding and the conclusions we reach about all of these things have as one component part our foundational understanding of whether or not our elections are legitimate. And once you understand that they aren't, it changes a whole lot of things. Now, it changes so many things that almost anything we can talk about is affected in some way by the understanding of our society we have reached in part through our misunderstanding about our elections.
And I am fascinated by this. So I spend a lot of time thinking about what it means that our elections are stolen and what it means if they're stolen a little bit, if they're stolen a lot. What does it mean if every single winner all the time is merely a selection? And what does it mean if there is some way that those selections can occasionally be thwarted? Because if we want the big picture understanding of how the election system really operates from the perspective of the global regime, then we actually do have to think about all these various permutations because you know that they do. Every obvious fact and situation that might arise that would immediately betray that foundational misunderstanding, the truth underlying the rest of it, that our elections are stolen. Every one of those instances must be accounted for with an explanation, and that explanation must be able to fit into the central narrative. And the thing is, once that system becomes more and more exposed, the global regime needs a whole lot more explanations to make excuses for every one of those little problems that arises once the foundational misunderstanding has been corrected and people begin to understand the implications of it. Eventually, they need so many excuses and explanations that the contradictions begin to rise to the surface and become visible to everyone. And at that point, the entire thing begins to break down and people recognize the system for what it is. So I spend a fair amount of time thinking about what it means that our elections are stolen and trying to place what I've been told about politics and what I've learned or thought I've learned about politics over the course of my life in this new context, understanding that our elections are not free and fair, safe and secure, and the reported results do not reflect the will of the American voters. I think about what that means and how it affects other things. And a few days ago, I was thinking about what that means in the context of the October surprise. Now, I imagine everyone here is familiar with the concept of the October surprise, but usually what it is, is an incredibly damaging story that comes out in the lead up to an election in order to smear one of the candidates and elevate the other in comparison. The New York Times ran this article in March while they were trying to sell the idea that Donald Trump's payoffs to Stormy Daniels were a huge problem and that Alvin Bragg had a great case against Trump. The headline on this article by Jonathan Weissman is Donald Trump and the sordid tradition of suppressing October surprises. So Donald Trump is a suppressor of October surprises. Secretive talks in the waning days of a campaign, furtive phone calls, ardent public denials. American history is full of October surprises, late revelations, sometimes engineered by an opponent that shock the trajectory of a presidential election and that candidates dread. In 1880, a forged letter ostensibly written by James A. Garfield claimed he wanted more immigration from China, a position so unpopular it nearly cost him the election. Ah, that's weird. People didn't like it that slavery was transferred from Black people to Chinese people? Strange. Weeks before the 1940 election, Franklin D. Roosevelt's press secretary need a black police officer in the groin, just as the president was trying to woo skeptical black voters. Sounds true. 
Roosevelt's response made history. He appointed the first black general and created the Tuskegee Airmen. But the scandal that has ensnared Donald J. Trump, the paying of hush money to a pornographic film star in 2016 is in a rare class, an attempt not to bring to light an election altering event, but to suppress one. The payoff to Stormy Daniels that has a Manhattan grand jury weighing criminal charges against Mr. Trump can trace its lineage to at least two other episodes foiling an October surprise. The first was in 1968 when aides to Richard M. Nixon pressed the South Vietnamese government to thwart peace talks in the closing days of that election. The second was in 1980. Fresh revelations have emerged that allies of Ronald Reagan may well have labored to delay the release of American hostages from Iran until after the defeat of Jimmy Carter. Now, what are October surprises? Really, we have a few examples there of October surprises or attempted October surprises that were thwarted. But underlying the understanding of each one of these events was that the event itself was real. What was being reported on was real news that either did or did not affect the outcome of a real election. But once you remove the necessity for the event in question to have been real, for it to have been reported, which we have seen repeatedly in the last eight years, and when you remove the necessity that the vote was accurately recorded and reported, and therefore our analysis of the result relative to the October surprise vanishes completely, what are we left with? What is the October surprise? Well, at that point, the October surprise is just a narrative element that helps the regime explain the ultimate outcome of the election that they have decided and reported. And the key understanding here is that the result and the importance of the result and the numbers, the actual spread, the difference goes way beyond who wins and who loses because there is a story to be told about the election results after they happen, after they're reported. If some candidate is extremely popular and is going to win 60-40, like everyone can see it's going to be a blowout, but that would also show people that it would be a blowout around the country and that Republicans or Democrats, doesn't matter, would win by so much. It would be a huge wave election, something that would turn the tide for generations. Well, you can't have that. And if you're able to control the outcomes, you might not convince the country that the candidate everyone can see is the most popular guy would lose, but you can convince the country that they probably only won by four or five points rather than 15 or 20 points. And then that means that you can make a case around the country for things working out much more evenly and not producing the wave election that virtually everyone expected. In that instance, they can say that the October surprise was thwarted. The candidate who was way ahead, this bad thing came out and the voters really punished his party around the country. Their opposition did much better than expected. But despite the October surprise, the voters still gave President X a four point victory. And once you tell the public that it was only four points, then you 
return to the default understanding that we're basically a 50-50 country. And this guy was really popular, which is why everyone was prepared to vote for him. But then we heard about this scandal and now he's not as popular. And to the extent that we are a voter who doesn't take our own vote all that seriously and votes on those sort of things like, oh, wow, a scandal. I can't vote for this candidate anymore. I'm going to switch my vote to the exact polar opposite thing. Then we're inclined to believe that other people did it, too. And we're inclined to believe that other people are right for doing so and that good people just don't bring themselves to vote for a candidate with a scandal like this. So consider the situation. We're about to have a 20 point landslide win in reality. That's what the actual voting populace looks like. And truthfully, that's probably too low. It's probably like 80, 20 people absolutely hate the uniparty. People are waking up and understanding that's really happening. But let's say it's 60-40 and the uniparty, the regime, needs it to be about 52-48. Well, they're going to produce that 52-48 result and they're going to tell us that 52-48 result. So they need to give us reasons why we should understand that the result as reported reflects the will of the American voter. So they will insert narrative devices to explain to us this is what actually happened. Now, I imagine that because the regime's control over the means of information was so strong that that effect actually was real to some degree in reality, but it's probably faded quite a bit, particularly in the age of obviously fake news once Trump started calling it out. And of course, also in the age of Internet research and fast communication and truth communities online that have taken at least partial control over the means of information. People are going to find out relatively quickly when the scandals are fake. And that's kind of what's particularly stunning when they continue to create these scandals around Donald Trump because they are so obviously fake to anyone who's paying attention. And because of that, they have more and more holes in the story that they have to defend all the time. And in order to do that, all they can do is further complicate the story. The purpose of all this isn't to say one side's right or the other side's right. They don't want either side to be right. That's why they construct the uniparty. They have two halves in controlled opposition, always fighting, but making sure that everyone knows while they're fighting that they are fighting over the exact same things. They both understand those things. They just have different views about those absolutely confirmed and unshakable realities underlying it all. Now, I think it's interesting and important to consider this stuff because we are going to reach a point where it actually matters in real life. As soon as everybody comes to the understanding that our elections are stolen and it's something that we don't have to avoid talking about in public, it's just everybody knows it really is going to affect the way we understand our world and our community and our fellow Americans. And I think that we are getting closer and closer to that moment and we're beginning to see some of the election issues bubble back up to the surface. Now, what you're going to see as they do that is all sorts of refutations, all sorts of news stories that prove to us 
election fraud was fake the whole time. They are going to try to reinforce that view with all of the standard issue villagers again and again and again. Remember, we just saw it a couple of months ago in the Dominion and Fox case, a few weeks before Fox ultimately settled to make that lawsuit go away. We got reports on discovery. We barely heard a single thing about the Dominion side of the discovery in the mainstream media. Virtually nothing. Raheem Kassam actually went through it, reported on it for the National Pulse. And it turns out that in that Dominion discovery, and he supplied the source documents to that discovery, it shows that Dominion knew its machines were wide open to manipulation through a series of various vulnerabilities. We saw all of that confirmed a few weeks ago with the release of the J. Alex Halderman report. But we were told none of that. Instead, we were told that the Fox News hosts text messages appeared in Fox's discovery documents. And those text messages show that the Fox News hosts knew they were lying about election fraud. Is that what those texts showed? No, it isn't. But that was the way they parsed it and told it to the public. And that became one of those things that everybody knows. And through doing that, they took all of the standard issue villagers who still will go out and argue that our elections are very safe and very secure. It had all of them using this now as further proof that our elections are very safe and secure. Even the Fox News hosts know it. And beyond that, they actually hate Donald Trump. Well, Tucker Carlson has said since then, I actually love Donald Trump. And he has talked at least a little bit about election fraud and how it's not possible to guarantee an accurate outcome with elections that are run by machines. So if Tucker doesn't believe that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results reflect the will of the American voter, then how could his text messages show he believes that? And regardless of what his text messages say, none of that has anything to do with the underlying reality of whether or not our elections are legitimate. But they release the story because they need everyone to understand, hey, you know that thing that people just keep believing for three years and that more people end up believing all the time? That thing we told you is a conspiracy. Well, it is even more of a conspiracy than we thought. Here is some new information confirming all our old information in new ways. Well, we get one of those phases before the roof finally caves in on all this nonsense. And we're in one of those phases now. There have been a few significant election related stories in the last few days. They are telling everybody. Not only are our elections very safe and very secure, but they're so safe and secure that we're finally getting to the point where all of the people who said they weren't very safe and secure are being punished. That's how safe and secure they are. They're so safe and so secure that anyone who even questions them is going to be punished severely and you should support their severe punishment. Unless you want to threaten our democracy, too. And if you're going to threaten our democracy, you will eventually get in big trouble and you will be punished as well. And that really is how all of this is framed. This is from Tuesday, CNN. 
Georgia grand jury handling potential indictments in Trump 2020 probe is sworn in. Ooh, the walls are closing in again later on Donald Trump. They're not totally touching his body yet, but they are starting to rub up against the elbows of his suit. And he's starting to be able to feel the heat of his own breath as it returns to his face off the wall just in front of him. Sooner or later, they will close all the way in, especially about this very important issue of our elections. Donald Trump should have known not to say bad things about our elections. And we told him to stop saying all those bad things. And he didn't. That's why he must be punished. And eventually all his supporters, too. The Georgia grand jury that is expected to consider charges against former president Donald Trump and his Republican allies for trying to overturn the 2020 election was sworn in Tuesday after a three hour selection process in Atlanta. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, an elected Democrat, launched the investigation in early 2021 after Trump tried to overturn his defeat in the Peach State with a public and private pressure campaign targeting Georgia election officials, the governor, lawmakers and prosecutors. A special grand jury previously heard testimony from 75 witnesses, including Trump advisors, his former attorneys, White House aides and Georgia officials. That panel issued a redacted report with charging recommendations, which will soon be weighed by the new grand jury, potentially as soon as next month. Two grand jury panels were picked Tuesday at the Fulton County Superior Court. Each panel includes 26 participants, 23 grand jurors and three alternates. These grand juries will meet separately twice a week for two months. At the start, they both will handle ordinary criminal cases from Atlanta and nearby suburbs. But one of these panels is expected to be tasked later this summer with deciding whether to approve indictments in the Donald Trump investigation. So Trump is going to get in trouble for his multi-pronged effort to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. The grand jury is being seated. That's the big news. They're not going to start considering this thing yet, but now they've been seated and they're going to consider it later. And once they consider it, ooh, they might recommend an indictment of the former president. Just like what happened in New York with Alvin Bragg, where he put together a couple of unrelated laws and created a brand new, a novel legal theory in order to indict Trump on a series of accounting errors related somehow to the Trump organization and Stormy Daniels. And then Jack Smith indicted him over his mishandling of national security documents. Were they classified? No. Was it espionage, even though he didn't share them with our adversaries or attempt to sell them to our adversaries? Sure. Sure. It's still espionage. And in Georgia, where all he did was his job in contesting an obviously rigged and stolen election, which he, from the position of president and commander in chief, and a guy with access to all of the information of all of the intelligence communities would certainly have and certainly know, well, he's going to be indicted for that too by this grand jury. And they will try him right in the run-up to the election and everybody will know that Donald Trump is a criminal. Or 
throughout this process, we might instead learn that the elections are just stolen and that therefore Donald Trump did absolutely nothing wrong. And instead, the people who have done something wrong are all of the politicians sitting illegitimately in office and all of the old guard institutions that have protected the narrative of very safe and very secure elections throughout this entire time. But they are all very mad that Donald Trump was contesting the elections in the first place. He shouldn't have done it. He should have just accepted the results and looked to protect our democracy. He was just trying to stay in power and he knew it was a lie the entire time, which makes him so much worse. And that is really what they believe. This is the New York Times from yesterday. Prosecutors ask witnesses whether Trump acknowledged he lost 2020 race. And this is the always Trump favorable Maggie Haberman, who knows everything. Federal prosecutors investigating former President Donald J. Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election have questioned multiple witnesses in recent weeks, including Mr. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner about whether Mr. Trump had privately acknowledged in the days after the 2020 election that he had lost, according to four people briefed on the matter. So anonymous sources who were briefed on the matter, no idea who these people are or how they would know or whether they're coming from the Trump and Kushner side or the side of the federal prosecutors. Is this just a leak? Is this whole thing meant to indicate guilt in some way, even though none of the information is reliable at all because it's being communicated to us by institutional liars and propagandists who cannot even name a source or how that source might know? Hmm. The line of questioning suggests prosecutors are trying to establish whether Mr. Trump was acting with corrupt intent as he sought to remain in power essentially that his efforts were knowingly based on a lie, evidence that could substantially bolster any case they might decide to bring against him. Mr. Kushner testified before a grand jury at the federal courthouse in Washington last month, where he is said to have maintained that it was his impression that Mr. Trump truly believed the election was stolen, according to a person briefed on the matter. The questioning of Mr. Kushner shows that the federal investigation being led by the special counsel, Jack Smith, continues to pierce the layers closest to Mr. Trump as prosecutors weigh whether to bring charges against the former president in connection with the efforts to promote baseless assertions of widespread voter fraud and block or delay congressional certification of Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s electoral college victory. A spokesman for Mr. Kushner and a spokesman for Mr. Trump did not respond to an email seeking comment that you can imagine they probably sent 10 minutes before printing this. So as they are piercing the layers closest to Donald Trump, the people who have been, I guess, pierced are supporting Donald Trump's side of the story and saying, yes, Donald Trump absolutely believes that the election was stolen, but that's no good. Because Trump is a liar. That's what he does. He lies to try to stay in power. And if he actually believes that the elections are stolen and he's the guy who's in the best position to have known as president and commander in chief, well, that means that he might still really think it because he keeps on saying it. And 
it's kind of comforting to tell ourselves, of course, as standard issue villagers, that he's just lying. It's all a big lie. Trump doesn't really believe that the elections are stolen. It's just what he says to keep his mindless followers connected to his campaign. He's a big liar, and they're all really dumb suckers. They never bothered checking to see whether or not the elections are stolen. They just believed the television, and it scares them that so many people out there disagree with them. So what do they do rather than changing their mind? Well, at that point, they have to determine that all of those people who disagree with them are thereby stupid. And they have absolutely no way of supporting that except by committing absolutely all of themselves to the idea that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will of the voters. They would rather believe that Trump is an evil liar and that all his supporters are stupid, evil liars who will believe anything they're told by their cult leader rather than reassessing that foundational misunderstanding about our elections. They will protect that foundational understanding at all costs, even if it means they are classifying an entire group of strangers who now represent well over half the country in the worst and most dehumanizing terms imaginable. And in doing so, they will say they're actually protecting the right and the good because these stupid, evil conspiracy theorists must be dealt with. And considering that they have already supported Nazis and medical segregation, they're probably only a few more opinions away from speaking German. Now, the New York Times is not going to risk their child-brained believers thinking that there's any chance Donald Trump was telling the truth about any of this. So in their very next paragraph, they say, but others in Trump's orbit who interacted with him in the weeks after the 2020 election, who have potentially more damaging accounts of Mr. Trump's behavior, have been questioned by the special counsel's office recently. Among them is Alyssa Farah Griffin, the White House communications director in the days after the 2020 election, repeating an account she provided last year to the House Select Committee on January 6th. She told prosecutors this spring that Mr. Trump had said to her in the days after the election, can you believe I lost to Joe Biden? In that moment, I think he knew he lost. Ms. Griffin told the House committee. So Trump could absolutely be speaking figuratively or sarcastically. This is the sort of thing that he says often in those terms, in his speeches, in rallies. But this time, according to Alyssa Griffin, Trump was finally admitting the real known truth. For one fleeting second, he was able to stop lying to Alyssa Griffin and then went right back to lying to all of his cult followers and supporters. And what does that do in the minds of the child brains reading the New York Times? Well, they disregard that other part. Oh, well, Jared Kushner is just covering up for his family member by saying Trump really believed it. But Alyssa Griffin, the woman who bravely told the truth in front of the January 6th committee, she is certainly telling the truth about Donald Trump because she has nothing to gain. Just all of these television contracts and fame and whatnot. 
She's the objective one, and that means she's telling the truth. That's a lot of work by the New York Times, a lot of propaganda to convince everyone out there that Jared Kushner, according to anonymous sources, says he believes that Trump absolutely honestly believes the election was stolen, but that despite that, he's still lying, according to people very close to him, like Alyssa Farah Griffin. They're basically saying, I know this one part sounds like bad news, but the truth is it's even better news than before. This might concern you about the status of our elections, but the truth is there's no reason to be concerned. Just listen to Alyssa Farah Griffin and know that she knows that Trump was lying in this one single instance, despite everything else he has said before and since. More election news to convince the child brains that our elections are very safe, very secure, very free, very fair, and that the reported results always accurately reflect the will of the voters. This is from Michigan. On Sunday in Yahoo News, reprinted from Traverse City, Michigan's The Record Eagle. Vote machine tampering. Attorney in downstate election probe sought to move case to Antrim County. A Michigan attorney accused, along with others, of illegally obtaining voting machine tabulators after the 2020 presidential election, unsuccessfully sought to move the case to Antrim County, court records show. Detroit attorney Stephanie Lambert and other supporters of former President Donald Trump are under investigation by Michigan State Police and previously named by Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel as being subject to investigation into, quote, a conspiracy to unlawfully obtain access to voting machines used in the 2020 general election. Nessel's petition and some court documents referred to Lambert using Gentilla, her previous married name. Lambert has denied any wrongdoing. Nessel, on August 5th, 2022, petitioned for a special prosecutor. Muskegon County Prosecutor D.J. Hilson was appointed September 8th, 2022, and has indicated in court filings that prosecutors are examining multiple crimes in multiple counties and charging decisions may be imminent. Hilson said Friday he was waiting for a court decision on a legal issue as it relates to a Michigan statute regarding the authority of county and or township clerks. Hilson is tasked with reviewing whether charges are warranted against Lambert and others named in Nessel's petition, including Matthew DiPerno, Dayer Rendon, Ann Howard, Ben Cotton, Jeff Lenberg, Doug Logan, James Penrose, and Dar Leaf. So the Soros Attorney General in Michigan is going after all of the people in the election integrity movement in Michigan. The obvious issues in Michigan's obviously stolen elections are too many to count and being unable to explain them away. They will simply attempt to prosecute everyone seeking out the truth. Now, this is from M live in Michigan on Wednesday. Judge clears way for charges in voting machine tampering case involving sheriff and ex-state rep. And somehow this article is written by a man named Simon Schuster. If this guy's middle name is and that would be the most awesome thing ever. 
The final hurdle for a decision on whether to charge nine individuals who allegedly obtained and tampered with voting machines in the aftermath of the 2020 election appears to have been cleared after Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Phyllis McMillan ruled undue possession of the machines is broadly illegal under Michigan law. Attorney General Dana Nessel appointed Muskegon County Prosecutor D.J. Hilson more than 10 months ago to determine whether to charge nine individuals for allegedly taking ballot tabulators from rural Michigan counties across the state to ostensibly examine them for evidence of election fraud in early 2021. The individuals named in the investigation have included former Attorney General candidate Matt DiPerno, Barry County Sheriff Dar Leaf, and now former Republican State Rep. Dyer Rendon, but it remains unclear who, if any, could face criminal charges. So the fact that they were able to get and analyze the machines, that is what we are being told is now criminal. The judge has ruled, yes, this constitutes a potential violation of the law. I have determined that you are able to prosecute these people trying to seek election integrity. You're able to prosecute them for looking at these machines. And in the future, no one will ever be allowed to look at any of these machines ever again. That is essentially what's being said. It is a crime for attempting to check whether or not our elections are as legitimate as we tell you, you are not allowed to question it or investigate it in any way, or this is what's going to happen to you. But that's not all. More election news, you say? Yes, more. Always more. And when you see a cluster of new election stories, it makes sense to consider whether or not we are seeing a brand new round of reruns. That will once again familiarize people with the problem as their mind further opens to accepting the reality of the problem. This is from the Washington Post. Just yesterday, Arizona escalates probe into alleged efforts to swing election for Trump. So just like Georgia, now Arizona wants to prosecute the people who tried to seek election integrity in the wake of the 2020 election. Arizona's top prosecutor is ramping up a criminal investigation into alleged attempts by Republicans to overturn the 2020 presidential elections in the state by signing and transmitting paperwork, falsely declaring Donald Trump the winner, according to two people familiar with the investigation. So just two random people familiar with the investigation. Is it the illegitimate attorney general of Arizona leaking that information? Is she the person who's familiar with the investigation who's not being named for the purposes of this Washington Post reporting? Arizona Attorney General Chris Mays assigned a team of prosecutors to the case in May, and investigators have contacted many of the pro-Trump electors and their lawyers, according to the two people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to candidly describe the probe. Investigators have requested records and other information from local officials who administered the 2020 election, the two people said, and a prosecutor has inquired about evidence collected by the Justice Department and an Atlanta area prosecutor for similar probes. It is unclear if the investigation will broaden into other attempts to undermine President Biden's victory in the state. 
including a pressure campaign by Trump and his allies to thwart the will of the voters and remain in office. Dan Barr, May's chief deputy, said the investigation is in the fact-gathering phase. He declined to say whether subpoenas have been issued and which statutes the team thinks might have been broken. This is something we're not going to go into thinking maybe we'll get a conviction or maybe we have a pretty good chance, he said. This has to be ironclad shut. And WAPO makes sure to mention that this is only one of several investigations into Donald Trump related to the 2020 election. They note the Fannie Willis investigation, and they even mention the Jack Smith investigation. Donald Trump is in very, very big trouble. The walls are closing in later again. Now, changing subjects without a segue, or how about this? You can pretend this is a segue. We have talked before about reruns and how the stories come around again and again and again, trying to make sure that everybody gets the point of the story. We need the entire class to understand what's going on. We need a critical mass of people to be able to pass the test so that we can graduate to the next grade, to the next level. And until we reach that critical mass, we're going to just have to see the same stories over and over and over again. And as we see them over and over and over, they become more obvious. And the more obvious they become, the more obvious they must become the funnier and more ridiculous they seem to everyone who already gets the lesson. And now we are seeing some rather extraordinary headlines coming out. Some of the news we have gotten this week is absolutely ridiculous. And so I just want to highlight it before we discuss more potential strikes in Hollywood and wrap up a week full of pretty good and pretty hilarious news. This is from Compact Magazine. The headline is, Ron DeSantis is the GOP's Liz Warren, and that is dead on accurate. Now, I'm not going to go through the article, but here's the conclusion. DeSantis partisans, like those of Warren in their time, seem to believe the winning political formula is to split the difference between the moderate center of the party and its extreme fringes. But this is a misconception because the real ideological extremism isn't on the right or left. On the contrary, both parties are dominated by an extreme center, to borrow the phrase of the left-wing British journalist Tariq Ali. The Republican establishment's devotion to tax cutting, entitlement slashing, and warmongering is anything but moderate, and the same goes for mainstream democratic stances on a wide range of issues. A self-proclaimed populist who seems eager to accommodate the extreme center is no populist at all and will rightly be regarded with suspicion from all sides. Now, I would disagree with his assessment of left, right and center, but he is exactly right in detecting Ron DeSantis's problem. Ron DeSantis is pretending to cater to the MAGA base, which are not at all an extreme fringe. They are absolutely the vast majority of Republican voters. While actively arguing for and supporting the positions of the Republican establishment, which is to say the uniparty right. And the uniparty is the point on which I would disagree with Jeff Schollenberger, the author of this article. It's not that the center is extreme. It's that what we imagine is the center represented by people who imagine themselves to be centrists 
That's just the uniparty. That's just the regime. And so it's not that Republicans are extreme on a certain range of centrist issues and Democrats are extreme on a similar range of centrist issues. It's that the uniparty left and uniparty right align on this series of issues, all supporting the regime. And all of that at this point is quite clearly extreme. These issues have worked their way toward their inevitable conclusions, which are rather extreme points. And when you think about the agenda that they are ultimately trying to implement, that the Uniparty is trying to implement, there is no way to actually approach the full implementation of that agenda without having to support all sorts of totally extreme positions. Now, page six, kind of the gossip subsidiary of the New York Post, published this on Wednesday. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. press dinner explodes in war of words and farting. Okay, you got that? A war of words and farting broke out at a Robert F. Kennedy press dinner, according to page six. And this is a headline in apparently the real news. Camelot ain't it. Page six regrets to report that a press dinner to boost Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign descended into a foul bout of screaming and polemic farting Tuesday night. The White House hopeful attended the affair at Tony's on the Upper East Side, no doubt hoping to impress on the ladies and gentlemen of the fourth estate his worthiness to sit at the very same Oval Office desk once occupied by his late uncle. But a shouting match over climate change broke out between two boisterous old men, sending the evening down an extremely unfortunate path. It's unbelievable that this exists. The gaseous exchange to which page six bore reluctant witness began after a guest asked Kennedy, founder of the ecological organization Waterkeeper Alliance, about the environment. And it seems that the mere inquiry was enough to set off apparently drunk gossip columnist turned flack, Doug Detcher, the host of the event, who became enraged and screamed at the top of his lungs, the climate hoax. Meanwhile, octogenarian art critic Anthony Hayden Guest, who appeared to have been sleeping happily for most of the dinner, was roused by the abrupt rumpus. He suddenly opened his eyes and denounced his longtime pal, Detchert, calling him a miserable blob. Shut up, implored Hayden Guest. Hayden Guest tells us he was not asleep. I was just thinking, he told us, and says he is the one who asked the question about the environment. Detchert continued to scream wildly about the climate change scam while Hayden Guest peppered him with verbal volleys from across the table, calling him variously effing insane and insignificant. Here, it seems, Detchert sensed the need for a new rhetorical tack and let rip a loud, prolonged fart while yelling as if to underscore his point, I'm farting. The room, which included a handful of journalists, as well as Kennedy's campaign manager, former Representative Dennis Kucinich, was stunned, seemingly unsure about whether Detchert was farting at Hayden Guest personally or at the very notion of global warming. Regrettably, we may assure readers 
that there was no room for doubt that the climate changed in the immediate environs of the dinner table. The candidate maintained a steady composure in the face of the crisis. Former Page Six reporter Flo Anthony attempted to change the subject, telling Kennedy how much she admired his father, the tragic Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Sadly and somewhat inexplicably, another guest brought things back to climate change, leading to another round of yelling. We're told Detchert and Hayden Guest have known each other for three decades. When asked to comment about his er outburst the next day, Detchert told us, I apologize for using my flatulence as a medium of public commentary in your presence. He also asked us to refer to him either as a gallivanting boulevardier or a beer-fueled sex rocket. But the beer-fueled sex rocket who picked up the tab for the evening as its host was unapologetic about his views, telling us that he has zero tolerance for the climate hoax scam nonsense in any venue that I am personally funding. He has a colorful history of sparring, sometimes rather literally, with the press and more specifically, page six reporters. Brit Hayden Guest, who has written for Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and penned books like Studio 54, Disco, and The Culture of the Night, tells us, I've known Doug many years. We have had spats before about this and that. We are not quite the same politically, but that doesn't affect relationships in the UK. But I thought this was pretty ridiculous. He continued, Doug said it was a hoax and scam. A scam for who? Who is benefiting? That's not a political thing. It's a human existence thing. Hayden Guest says fighting in public is very unusual for him. But when it is preposterous and it's a life or death issue with the planet, to treat it as a zany political thing is foolish. During the verbal battle, Hayden Guest had told Detchert, I am done with you. By the next day, though, the stink seemed to have dissipated. I didn't mean it, Hayden Guest said. I am sure we will talk again. Now, that is quite a story. Is that story true? Who knows? But I'd like to pretend that it is because it would make the world so much funnier. And it is believable because liberals could be this crazy. It's also funny that one just didn't want the other to talk about a no-no subject in public to the point where he made it a huge moral issue that someone could believe something so awful and then turn around a day later and be like, yeah, it's all right. Of course, people believe that we probably aren't going to ultimately win that whole climate thing. People are realizing it's a hoax, but no one in our part of society is ever supposed to say it in public. So I knew I needed to destroy and embarrass that old fart box. Now, finally, a story near and dear to my own heart, and I'm talking about the potential strike by the Screen Actors Guild. And before we get into this, I just want to say, I obviously do not want anyone to have his or her life destroyed or their family somehow threatened financially due to union-induced work stoppages. It is sad that people on the lower end of the pay scale will ultimately be hurt by this in some sense. Although I cannot say it's sad in all instances, I do just want to say that clearly not everybody deserves the worst results that may yet occur. But this is from Zero Hedge yesterday. Hollywood grinds to a halt as actors and writers go on strike together 
for the first time in six decades. Actors and writers in Hollywood have staged the first joint walkout in six decades, saving the country, if not the world, from the production of crappy, woke entertainment, at least for now. The Screen Actors Guild, which represents approximately 160,000 performers, announced the strike on Thursday after failing to reach a new labor agreement with Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents studios including Walt Disney and Netflix, Bloomberg reports. According to the studios, double-digit percentage increases in salaries and higher pension and health benefits, plus a boost in residuals, the money actors and others receive when shows are rerun, weren't enough. Also offered were protections against the use of actors' digital likenesses. And what they're talking about there is actors who go in, have their entire face and body completely and totally scanned in order to be easily able to create a computer-generated likeness of them who then essentially makes the human element totally obsolete. And I know people who have done that. They get paid to go do this. And they essentially become digital extras, digital background workers for television and film productions. They are essentially able to produce an indistinguishably real version of that person to be used in whatever situation they choose to use that person's likeness in. A key dispute which remains unresolved is compensation from streaming services as online video entertainment cannibalizes broadcast and cable TV. I cannot believe how far apart we are in so many things, said SAG president Fran Drescher. The entire business model has been changed by streaming. This is a moment of history. This is a moment of truth. If the strikes last more than a few days, the impact will be far greater than just the writer's strike alone. Meanwhile, actors will have to stop promoting upcoming projects and refuse to attend events such as Comic-Con International, which is scheduled for next week. Now, I just learned today that apparently Fran Drescher, the president of SAG, used to be married to Dr. Shiva, who you might know from his work on issues involving election integrity and his lawsuit against social media companies for censorship. But Fran Drescher was also the star of a television show called The Nanny. And I find that particularly funny because as a person who knows literally thousands of actors, I do not think that there is an industry or a profession that attracts more genuine child brains. So the fact that they have a nanny guiding them is absolutely hilarious to me. It is so literally appropriate that I almost think it must be a trick. Now, that Zero Hedge article mentions some of the things actors are not allowed to do while on strike, which include going to these conventions and promoting their work on social media. They are also not allowed to do tours, personal appearances, interviews, fan expos, festivals for your consideration events. And those are the events that promote certain people and films or projects for award season panels, go to premieres or screenings, go to award shows, do press junkets, do podcast appearances related to film stuff. I assume use social media for those types of promotions or do studio showcases. So people whose entire purpose in life is getting and remaining famous in order to profit 
are now disallowed from doing almost all the things that allow them to get paid for remaining famous. And once the payment incentive goes away, how much do the activities whose purpose is maintaining that level of fame simply stop? The incentive for doing all these things immediately disappears and these people drop out of the public spotlight to a fair degree. You go to Comic-Con, that is a huge press event. The people attending are very famous because all the fans are very committed fans. Comic-Con has the most committed fans that you might ever see. Actors go to various press events and various parties. They appear with certain products that they are given. Sometimes they are sponsored to appear with those products and paid for it. Actors involved in those productions are often able to travel around the country attending conventions. You could be an actor who hasn't worked in 10 years, but was on a hit show in 2010 and travel around the country to various conventions, making 50 or $100,000, sometimes more in a weekend for sitting there, meeting fans, taking pictures and signing autographs. So they can't do that. They can't promote themselves or their projects on social media. And I wonder how extensive that will be. Maybe we'll find out if they're not able to use their likeness for endorsement campaigns on social media, a whole lot of their income is going to dry up. And while there might be actors and celebrities out there who can get through this period financially, maybe they have been successful enough to just ride this out. They're going to have a very difficult time dealing with it emotionally because these people legitimately feed on attention at this point. They need it. It is part of the addiction. So they're not only having their outlets for attention taken away, but this all actually represents a long-term threat to their supply of attention in the future. At some point, the content schedules are going to catch up and all of that content that wasn't produced is going to leave a big hole on the streaming platforms. People aren't going to have new things to watch and the new things that are being supplied are projects that probably weren't going to be released if the strikes had never happened. So there is less of the content and the content that exists is further downgraded, further encouraging people who are already sick of Hollywood and the entertainment provided, and especially these actors to abandon all of this completely. And that is probably a necessary outcome because these people actually are legitimate real life propagandists for the regime. The same thing that was true of actors in Germany during World War II, those propaganda film stars, all of that is true of these propaganda film stars as well. And they have done nothing but promote the agenda of the regime for however many years, certainly, obviously, right out front for the last three. People are not ultimately going to look on all of that kindly. People are sick of all of this. What happens when it just disappears? What happens when people's habits change? What happens when they realize they're wasting a whole lot of time watching propaganda on television? And that eating and watching TV every night is not the most productive use of time if you want to live a healthy, fulfilling life of purpose. Now, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. 
If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's high!